We're driven by the search for better. But when it comes to hiring, the best way to search for a candidate isn't to search at all. Don't search match with Indeed. Indeed is your matching and hiring platform with over 350 million global monthly visitors, according to Indeed data, and a matching engine that helps you find quality candidates fast. Ditch the busy work. Use Indeed for scheduling, screening, and messaging so you can connect with candidates faster. Leveraging over 140 million qualifications and preferences every day, Indeed's matching engine is constantly learning from your preferences, so the more you use Indeed, the better it gets. Join more than 3.5 million businesses worldwide that use Indeed to hire great talent fast. And listeners of this show will get a $75 sponsored job credit to get your jobs more visibility at Indeed.com slash BlueWire. Just go to Indeed.com slash BlueWire right now and support our show by saying that you heard about Indeed on this podcast. That's Indeed.com slash BlueWire. Terms and conditions apply. Need to hire? You need Indeed. I'm Adam McGee. And I'm Andrew Snyder. And you're listening to Make Time for This, probably part of Eurostep Podcast Network and the Blue Hour Podcast family. Andrew, how are you doing? I am uh, pushing through, Adam. Uh, how how are you doing? Uh, you know, we're, we're coming towards the, the business end of this World Cup. Our first, uh, or not our first, but a, a foray into talking about football more regularly on this podcast, and uh, you know we're 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 pushing through it. Uh, some good moments, some bad throughout this tournament, and uh, some in- enticing finals uh, potentially on the horizon. I'm doing well. Uh, I have enjoyed the World Cup very much. I don't know if the semi-finals have set up in exactly the kind of way I would have liked. I think for best final, you say an enticing final. I'm not so sure. I have less interest in the games remaining than I've had in pretty much all the games up to that. I don't say that to say like, oh, I'm not going to be watching these games or anything. It's just I think on paper, there isn't quite the same level of excitement that was there before. And I think to this tournament's credit... It's kind of delivered on what looked good on paper, and then it's also maybe delivered in some of what's looked bad on paper. It's been a good World Cup. Um, we will review all of those quarterfinal games. We'll talk through all four games, how the four semifinalists got there, and we will look ahead to those semifinals to try and figure out who is going to make it to the final. But before we do, we'll we'll start off on a much, much sadder and tragic note, which is uh what day was it now? It was at, it was at the Argentina Netherlands game that word came true that legendary prominent US soccer journalist Grant Wall um had sadly collapsed at the game, passed away. Um news that kind of when it broke on Twitter, I mean seemed very, very surreal like uh, as surreal as i think any kind of breaking news of someone's death like that 
has felt for me in a long time. Just kind of, he's been very visible, very prominent, obviously very active throughout the World Cup. And for that to just kind of happen like that was truly, truly shocking and really, really terrible. I know you're someone I've, I mean, I've followed Grant Wall on Twitter for many, many years. He's, if you want to kind of just get a sense of like, where the game is at around the world and you're you're following key journalists from different countries, he's absolutely on that list no matter where you're from. Obviously, people in the US are more than familiar and will follow his work very closely over the years. And I, I don't think it's an exaggeration I mean, he's a, to say he's been essential to the growth and the the growth in interest in the game in America. Um, but... I he is someone too that I know I've read a lot of his stuff over the years. I've I've followed him on Twitter, and yeah, I've never really heard anyone say a bad word about him. He seemed very diligent about his job. Seemed like a very nice guy, and that certainly came true in a lot of the tributes that have been shared across social media in the past few days. So to pass over to you, who's probably read a whole lot more and being kind of more closely tied to his his work over the years i'm sure you were especially shocked like everyone else when you heard this news yeah uh i think i was on a plane <laughs> talking uh to you and our other gsbn friends who were filling me in on what had happened grant wall someone that i've been reading dating back to when he was a college basketball writer at sports illustrated and you know writing cover stories about lebron james and then he transitions to cover soccer full time um, and because he wanted to uh, on a podcast I was listening to the other day uh, called Offside that formerly on ESPN. Um, now they're independent. They played a clip from uh, an interview they did with him um, a few years ago where he just saw the opportunity for for growth of the sport, wanted to be a part of that. And then just because of the global nature of the game, wanted to be there to tell all of the stories that are there because of that um i don't finish books but i've <laughs> finished both of his books the beckham experiment about david beckham's uh kind of what was intentioned to be a groundbreaking transfer to the la galaxy also masters of modern soccer which came out in 2018 which was kind of just like using one player specifically to break down an archetype of a type of player per chapter um guys like javi alonso um I think Pulisic made the cut, but that was just, you know, had to, had to get the American guy in there and a few other guys, a, a very uh, entertaining read. And then just reading all of his coverage of, you know, U.S. soccer elections of World Cups or whatever it may be, he tried to cover a lot of ground for that reason that he said, because it's a global game and global stories are to be told. But he's also one of the first people who I who helped me understand like what it means to be a sports journalist that takes their job seriously. Because I think in back then my experience is like, okay, I'm reading my baseball beat writer. Who's asking the same cliche questions about uh, how, how did it feel out there today? Kind of a thing. And then Grant wall in his sincerity and also confidence in what he was doing. Um, I think I, I'm imagining one press conference with David Beckham where he's just sitting there asking very, very difficult questions. So I'm like, oh, this is this is what the role of a journalist was. And that's what I viewed Grant Wallace, somebody that in his work was committed to uncovering the truth and being honest about what he was covering rather than making friends with 
with uh, his subjects. But that being said, his approach to that and the work that he did gave him so much credibility. You see the tributes pour in um, over the weeks. Uh, Nate Scott of, I think, USA Today Now's thread about just how he would advocate for other journalists coming up, and especially in the wake of the layoffs at SI a few years ago, and that despite he, despite him being competitive and one of the best in his field and wanting to be one of the, one of the best in his field, he wanted to also elevate the work of people that um, he respected and that didn't necessarily have a platform, obviously committed to telling stories about uh, human rights abuses in this World Cup, uh, being supportive of the LGBT um, community. So it's just a immeasurable loss to sports journalism, um, the world's the world sport football soccer whatever you want to call it and then his friends and family so just a a very tough thing here in the middle of of a world cup and really kind of grounds you and you know makes you want to tell the people in your life you care about them while they're still around because uh we don't do that enough yeah for sure um i mean you just have to look at journalists across so many different sports who crossed paths at him over the course of his career the many places he's been i guess sports illustrated for the longest time and most prominently uh but whatever sports someone covered whatever level of reporter they were at it seemed like he always had good advice was willing to give people time and just genuinely cared about people um and to your point like that's for someone like me from ireland who loves football but i'm certainly not locked in and haven't been over the years on all things uh, U.S. soccer, he is the person. If I wanted if I wanted an answer for something, or if I wanted a perspective, I'm like, uh, who will I turn to for this? It was him. I don't even have a second on that. Like, there's not someone now where I'm like, oh, that's who I'll go and check out. And I do think that's a testament to just kind of how towering a figure he was in the sport, uh, representing the U.S. perspective worldwide. Like, he was coverage of football in the united states i think that's that's the reputation he had earned he put in a lot of work to get to that place and yeah just unbelievably sad a colossal loss all right no easy way to switch it over but quarterfinal games andrew um the first quarterfinal croatia brazil We've talked a lot about Brazil over the last few weeks on the pod. They were my clear, clear World Cup favorite. I really thought this was the year where Brazil were going to win it again. Instead, though, it turns out that what is now a 20-year drought when it comes to getting past the quarterfinals, something which truly is unspeakable for Brazil. I can't stress that enough for for anyone in the U.S. listening who's maybe the kind of person who dips in and out of football at World Cups or new to the game, this is like disaster level in Brazil. The level of anxiety this will provoke, it's just, it's so far from acceptable for what they expect. Um, but they seemed to be on their way. I mean, very tight, cagey game. Everything that came out in terms of the free-flowing football that put um, Korea Republic to the sword very, very early on the last 16 game, all disappeared here. Very tight, very cagey. 
um, the experienced Croatian midfield of Kovacic, Brozovic and Modric did a really nice job of just stifling Brazil. Someone like Perisic, Paslic even on the other side, both very good at uh, offering a trek going forward, but also falling back and giving you a really, really solid block that's very difficult to penetrate through in the midfield. And it all worked. Brazil had chances. They created some good moments, but generally Croatia were always right where they needed to be um, until a Neymar goal put Brazil 1-0 up in extra time. At that point, you're like, okay, all they've got to do is manage the game, hold on, close it out, and they're true. Bruno Pekovic had other ideas, came up with a goal in the 117th minute to send this one to penalties. Seen a lot of penalties recently. It feels like penalty shootouts in more games than not. And Croatia have never lost a penalty shootout in a World Cup. I think they've won five penalty shootouts between the last two World Cups now, which is honestly incredible i part of that i'm like oh that feels like it's gonna run out very soon because it's very rare for any team whether it's international or club to go on a run like that and when it comes to winning penalty shootouts but their strategy was better and they took better penalties i think quite simply like there there's not a whole lot to that brazil a couple of unfortunate misses but then you also had I mean, we can we can debate, we can argue about whether it was a coach's decision, whether it's his own decision, whether he just wanted all the glory. But when you've got Neymar, and Neymar is taking the fifth penalty, you're making a big mistake. You've just you're blowing it. This is something that it's not only tied to Brazil. We've seen quite a few teams do something like this and go out on penalties because what's I guess the most likely outcome for the fifth penalty? Maybe maybe it gets there more often than not. I kind of feel like it doesn't, though. And if your best penalty taker wants the glory involved in the penalty shootout, send them up in the first tree and let them score their penalty. Honestly, send them up first. Because if you score your first one, the other team misses, then the odds are so heavily stacked in your favor. I do not understand that um, if it was Chiche's decision, it's a bad one. If it was Neymar's decision, Chiche should have been like, well, no, you're not doing that. I don't care about you getting a potentially winning penalty. I want you to score the first one and give us a chance to go true. I mean, it's not where the game gets lost because Brazil probably should have had it won before that. They should have held on. They should have kind of been a little more controlled in extra time instead of searching for the second goal. But that is the thing that will stick with me from this game. Neymar has continued to flop, I mean, if we're being honest, at World Cups. And if this kind of generation of Brazil teams um, tied to him, if we look through that and they're not getting past quarterfinals, he's undoubtedly part of the reason for it. Because in every tournament, one way or another, sometimes his luck doesn't go his way, but he also doesn't make his own luck. And I just think him taking the fifth penalty was a truly bizarre decision. And it's going to be the thing I'm going to remember from Brazil in this tournament. Yeah, for me, there were two things that stood out in this match. Um, obvi- or aside from that, because obviously that's the story going into it. I mean, you, you, you end a penalty shootout 
with Marquinhos off the post and Neymar not taking a penalty. And that's going to be the story uh, of the tournament. Uh, another thing that stands out for me is just how at the international level and in this team, the midfield of Kovacic, uh, Brozovic and Modric stands up against anybody. And they've done it for, for two world cups now in a row. And they, um, I mean, this is a game where I, I don't think they were quite as like, this wasn't the typical like get the game to penalties uh that Croatia had, had in the past um they didn't have much bite going forward only one shot on target but i i feel like they they were trying to take their chances on the counter and 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 in possession and it just didn't necessarily uh yield anything until that um late goal i'm not going to pronounce this wrong but the other story for croatia in this match was uh Livakovic. The goalkeeper who was yeah, just Lavakovic. Ex- yeah. Wow, my eyes just you know, Lavakovic uh, was incredible. I mean, in these instances, uh, in tight spaces with with Brazilian players, he he just really had a great ability to make himself big and take up space and make sure that if any part of him got on the ball to break up these these shot attempts, and then. And then you know you equalize late, you take it to penalties, and like like you said, just like this is the the second tournament in a row where if you get to penalties, um, they're they're going to be clinical and composed and tough to beat. Another thing that always shocks me about Croatia is just how little I notice Dejan Lovren when they're playing, because in my experience and watching him day in and day out, he's very noticeable for all the wrong reasons, and for some reason in this he's side, a good tournament. Just, he just doesn't like he doesn't make the catastrophic mistake that uh that you would typically associate with him. But um yeah, the, the not I, I wouldn't say I'm shocked, but but this I was uh very surprised by this result. But w- when it's Croatia, you you've just come to expect things like this to happen. Yeah, I mean I think the thing with them is they are incredibly well organized, well drilled, very solid, which all those things often end up being pejoratives or sound a little condescending but i think the thing that croatia have with all of those is they are good for a goal too it's it's not like like for example here they go one nil down after kind of being right there without being on top all game and for most teams you get brazil into extra time if you were to then concede you're like oh that's it it's over and croatia you just you have to kill them off if you don't kill them off they will stick with you the whole way and they're completely clinical. They're, you give them the slightest look at it, whether it's in a shootout or it's in the game, they're taking their they're taking their opportunities. Um, there are, like, Lovren, I think, is a good example of someone that should be a problem for them at this point. Like, this is an older team. These guys, one, they've been around the block, and that helps from an experience point of view. Um, but they're also past their best some of their key players like undoubtedly they're also playing a lot of extra time and that should not be going to their their advantage right now and yet they are i think uh yosko guardiol is certainly someone who has been getting a lot of attention in recent months chelsea nearly signed them right at the deadline um he has been phenomenal. I think he has a really strong case as the best centre-back of the tournament so far, and that also helps with someone like Dejan Lovren. 
I don't know, though. It's very hard to look past this team. And just, like, to zoom right out, Croatia are... <laughs> they've been good for a long time. Um, They've been good, really, since their... Pretty much since their existence in international football as Croatia. Um, and it's it's a minor miracle to say the least um this is a country with a population i believe is under four million this is a smaller country than ireland and i in my wildest dreams i could never imagine ireland getting to a world cup semi-final croatia i believe were third in france 98 were finalists in the last world cup they'll have a chance to be finalists again here minimum they're going to be in a third fourth place playoff just being a semi-final team with that consistency is incredible now they have had like singular world-class players in all of those davor suker in 98 one of the the best strikers in the world at the time and he really powered them to that and luka modric more recently but You've still got to build something around that. The pieces all still have to work. We have seen plenty of teams with star talent. I mean, Brazil are an example of that. Um, and Neymar being maybe arguably too much of an individual, I don't know, and it just doesn't quite come together. But you've you've got to make a team. You've got to have it that there is a balance there. They always find it. I, I don't know how they do it. I don't think it's something that could be replicated at all. But there is something within that group. There's a mindset that just seems to be developed within Croatian football. And I guess that kind of, it's something of a self-fulfilling prophecy. Like it feels itself. I mean, those players saw Croatia get to the semifinals in 98. So that's possible. So then when you're in the mix in Russia, it's, yeah, why can't we get to a final? Why can't we win the World Cup? And then you get to the final that time and you've no fear of anyone again. So it shows that if you can kind of just get it together and get true, and if you've a good enough system, good enough players in place, you can really kind of transform who you are as a as a footballing country. And I mean, plenty of good players have come from Croatia, come from Croatian clubs over the years. But even that lineup, like, again, Dejan Lovren is a good example in most major European footballing nations. Dejan Lovren is not still starting at centre-back at this point in his career. So... Hot tip to Croatia. I mean, very hard to bet against them at this point. They just, they have something figured out. They're capable of producing these moments of magic. And uh, for the second consecutive World Cup, they're in the semifinals. We're driven by the search for better. But when it comes to hiring, the best way to search for a candidate isn't to search at all. Don't search match with Indeed. Indeed is your matching and hiring platform with over 350 million global monthly visitors, according to Indeed data, and a matching engine that helps you find quality candidates fast. Ditch the busy work. Use Indeed for scheduling, screening, and messaging so you can connect with candidates faster. Leveraging over 140 million qualifications and preferences every day, Indeed's matching engine is constantly learning from your preferences, so the more you use Indeed, the better it gets. Join more than 3.5 million businesses worldwide that use Indeed to hire great talent fast. And listeners of this show will get a $75 sponsored job credit to get your jobs more visibility at Indeed.com slash BlueWire. Just go to Indeed.com slash BlueWire right now and support our show by saying that you heard about Indeed on this podcast. That's Indeed.com slash BlueWire. 
Terms and conditions apply. Need to hire? You need Indeed. Whether you're a world-class athlete or a podcaster like me, we all understand the importance of mental and physical well-being and proper recovery for top-notch performance. That's why I'm excited that Unified Healing is sponsoring this podcast. Unified Healing is a new and super innovative global network of wellness centers powered by Energy Enhancement System, or EE System. If you haven't heard of the EE System, you'll want to listen up. This technology promotes wellness, deep relaxation, purification, and rejuvenation. At hundreds of locations across the globe, access to a center is easy and affordable. Interested in experiencing the EE system technology for yourself? Go to unifiedhealing.com slash bluewire to learn more and find a center near you. That's unifydhealing.com slash bluewire. No material or testimonials on the Unified Healing website are intended to be viewed as medical advice or a substitute for professional medical advice, diagnosis, or treatment. Always seek the advice of your physician or other qualified healthcare provider with any questions you may have regarding a medical condition or treatment and before undertaking a new healthcare regimen, including EE system. Next up, Netherlands, Argentina. I There's a game we'll talk about later that I think is widely being accepted as the game as a tournament in a footballing sense. Unless something really kind of dramatic comes along with the three or the four, I guess, including the third and fourth place playoff, not that they ever go down in memory. Um, but unless anything crazy comes along with those four games, I think the game from this tournament that will stick out in my memory is Netherlands-Argentina. Because it was completely wild. Just completely and utterly crazy. Um, the Dutch did not have a good performance at all. They let Argentina through for a goal that really just kind of changed the game when Nahil Molina scored his goal. It felt like, oh, I don't. I don't like the way the Dutch are playing. They don't seem to have it. I don't know where it goes coming from. And then when Lionel Messi eventually scores a penalty to make it 2-0, it's game over. Except it wasn't. Van Hal, to his credit, again, completely changed the dynamics of his team. <laughs> um, went to, I guess, the most rudimentary style you can possibly go to in football. He got the big guys on. Vood Veghorst came on and honestly immortalized himself as kind of maybe a trivia question for for World Cup fans. Um <laughs> maybe something more than that. But with with Veghorst and Luke De Jong, all of a sudden the Dutch pivoted to playing with real size. They weren't getting anywhere with the Kind of the pie, Bergwijn, Gakpo, Trio, that kind of mobility wasn't having the kind of joy they would have hoped for. Worth noting that Scaloni pivoted with his lineup and Argentina went to a back five um, with Lissandra Martinez coming in to partner Otamendi and Christian Romero. And that kind of matching up with the Dutch attack certainly nullified what they were able to do. Um, I think the Dutch could have got more from this game in midfield. That didn't materialize. So Van Hal makes the switch late in the game and they rely on size and against an Argentinian team, which does not have any size, they got some success. Vuvekhorst got a, one back with a really great header in the 83rd minute. Just to give a lifeline 
Andrew, you were in an Uber, I believe, at the time. Um, and you were messaging me about the game. First of all, you were disappointed. I was like, hold on, it's not over yet. Vegorse has got one back. Uh, and then you later asked me, where's my equalizer? And thanks to honestly one of the most genius plays I can remember under such pressure with those stakes, the equalizer came. If I'm remembering correctly, it was uh, Stephen Berghuis who played kind of slightly disguised pass just along the edge of the wall to where the, the secondary wall, the Dutch wall alongside them was formed into the feet of Vukveghorst who swiveled and finished brilliantly. This is something that's very, very simple that you do not see teams try that on the rare occasions it does get tried, Bruno Fernandes would actually try this in the next game we'll talk about, and it was intercepted, and you'd look very, very stupid if that happens. And you would look particularly stupid if it happened in the 10th minute of stoppage time, staring World Cup exit in the face. But the Dutch pulled this off. After the game, uh, Van Gaal gave the credit to this for this to Veghorst, saying it's something that he has done at Besiktas and had success with, so it was his idea. He brought it into the camp, and they executed it really well from there. The moment of the tournament, honestly, for me. That game going to extra time at that point, the reactions of the Argentinian players, which remained interesting throughout extra time and beyond. Um, just absolutely incredible stuff. I thought the Dutch probably edged in the first half of extra time, and then in the second half, it was really all Argentina. And it goes to penalties. Pouring out for your guy, Andrew. Big, big verge. Virgil van Dijk steps up first for the Dutch. This is again, who have you got stepping up first? I have to say, in the moment, though, I didn't, I didn't think that was wrong. Like, he's one, he's a true leader. He strikes the ball very well. You would trust him to remain composed. But Virgil van Dijk misses the penalty. And that was it. That was the difference maker. There was there was no room for the Dutch to get back in from there. Lothar Martinez with a great penalty to seal the win and Argentina go through to the semifinals. A lot to, to touch on there, Andrew. I don't know if you want to go to the Veghorst first, if you want to talk Virgil van Dijk, where do you want to start? Yeah, and catching up on this match and watching it, it's there's endless amount of storylines. First of all, uh, I want to comment just the really nice pass on the the first goal from from Messi. Um, kind of a yes. a, a no look little cut, not cut back because it was moving forward, but just kind of with his body and his eyes misdirects the defenders. Plays in Molina, who makes a nice outside of the the boot finish. Gets the penalty, and then yeah, the the uh, just like hail mary approach of putting on Veghorst and it working is just great to see that happen. The the free kick and just the the desperation, but also the creativity in it was brilliant. I mean, you know, what do you do when you need a break in case of emergency situation? Yep. You get a guy that's paid, played for Sean Dyche, Adam. That's that's really <laughs> what you want in that situation. Um, 
if, but the, and like that, ha- that on that though, that is because I think we talked about it even our preview and we looked through the squad and they're like Luke De Jong, Vaghorst, what are the truth is that is good tournament squad building. Oh yeah, absolutely. Because you look at other teams that we'll talk about and you're replacing what's not working with more players who play in the same style but aren't actually as good as the guys you started. Like that, that is generally what happens for a lot of teams. Where it wasn't happening for the Dutch at all. They weren't getting any joy. So Van Hal's like, okay, this isn't working. Let's just completely pivot here. And you get your two goals out of it and you almost get through to a World Cup semi-final. Like that's a a move that <laughs> the style of that would not have been more unpopular anywhere than it was in the Netherlands, where this team has been criticized and has been criticized quite a bit for the way they play football. This is not total football that the Dutch um, like to associate with, but it was the right decision in the moment. And they very nearly got the result because of it. Um, Yeah, absolutely. I mean, in a situation where in international football, you're like, all right, we need a goal. Maybe we'll get one on a set piece. Not how I drew it up for the second goal when I thought of uh, Veghorst's equalizer. You know, I thought he was going to do it with his head again, but that that was beautiful nonetheless. And then I wonder, the... sorry to cut across you, but I wonder too, like if that's Memphis Depay there, like he possibly doesn't get that space. Like that's also maybe Argentina. We're not expecting a ball to Veghorst's feet. Where if it's Depay or if it's Gakpo, there's probably someone like stuck to his hip so that he gets no space there. Like that possibly plays into it too. Yeah. Definitely. And it, I mean, it, I mean, it was just a great turn to get a shot off there, too. I mean, not a guy I've spent too much time thinking about in my life watching this sport. And here in the biggest possible moment, he has two moments of brilliance and they're back in the game. Uh, and just like the, the tensions in this match were just elevated to 11. You've got... Uh, I can't remember who it was for Argentina just blasting the ball right by the Dutch bench. And then Paredes. Virgil van Dyke, Paredes, Virgil van Dyke body checking someone to the ground in, in the skirmish. And then you've got penalties going on. You've got Dutch players uh, because of those tensions uh, and Argentine uh, players just uh, talking shit back and forth during the penalties. And then when Argentina gets, uh, the winning penalty or whatever happened there, they did the the thing that you do when you're the biggest hater in the world is instead of celebrating your own victory, you turn to laugh at the person you've just beaten. Like there was, there was a lot of uh, ill feelings towards one another in that match, and for better or worse, I think it it made it the game that it was. And uh, I really thought um, in watching it back, it, it was insane that Argentina didn't score in the second half of that. Um, that extra time period. I think Enzo Fernandez hit the post Um, just like from an entertainment scale, the last 20 minutes of that match um, were incredible. I, on our movie podcast, we'll describe certain things as bonkers. I think this qualifies as bonkers. You will. will. We're going to, we're going to put this in in the bonkers category. Uh, I mean, Vecor scoring two goals after the 80th minute. Now saying that it's like, you could just count on like 10 minutes of added time in any half this world cup. So it's like uh, you're playing an extended game, but yeah, didn't have it on my world cup bingo card. Um, Argentina just continued to find their way into the next round. And 
the team at the beginning I picked in the final are not doing it uh, convincingly, but you know somehow that keeps arriving. You abandoned your child, Andrew, because I I did, I, you, yeah, you I did. Disowned that one quickly, and I I thought you were right to disown it. I'm thoroughly unimpressed by them. It's crazy that they're here, but this is what can happen. I I don't it, think they're very good, and yet they're in a very strong position to win the World Cup. And my comment in throwing them overboard last week, just like completely throwing them into the ocean and then hitting uh, hyperspeed on my jet ski uh, to get away from them and never have to see them again. That's how hard I abandoned them, was that at a certain point we could get a messy takeover game. And that's not really how it happened here. So even so, the the part of me wonders uh, against either Croatia or in a final, do we get that one game that's just defined by Messi returning to prime Messi form and and winning a game all by himself? I don't know. This team hasn't been impressive, but uh, you can't rule it out. The thing I'll say about Argentina is they are clearly living in their own little world right now. And... I guess that could be good. You know, the whole everyone's against us mentality has been fostered effectively. In reality, I don't think anyone is against them. The whole narrative that I think this tournament has been built around is wouldn't it be great to watch Messi win a World Cup? And that seems to have been accepted as a narrative everywhere but in Argentina, or maybe it is there too. Maybe it's just in the Argentina camp, they're convincing themselves that the whole thing is differently. I found their whole behavior around this game completely and utterly bizarre. They were really upset with Van Hal for in the pre-match press conference. He was asked, as you're to expect, I guess, um, like, what's your plan for Messi? How are you going to stop Messi? And he noted, well, if they don't have the ball, that's how you stop Messi. And it's it's like 10 v 11 if you don't. They took that to be greatly disrespectful. It's kind of reality. Like, the guy's 35, 36. I, I found that really weird that they they dug in so deeply on it. Then there's going back even further for ammunition on Van Hal, which it's like, what, this is what you're doing to motivate yourself? I guess it kind of worked. So when Messi scored, he went over and stood in front of the bench, stared down the Dutch bench, stared down Van Hal. Van Hal was not even looking in his direction at the time, so that didn't really work out for what he was hoping for. But he did uh, Juan Roman Raquelme's celebration. I don't know if you even know Raquelme, if you if you're familiar, remember him. I do. I don't I don't remember the celebration though. So Raquelme was like uh just an unbelievably gifted player. Just technically capable things that very few players were able to do. And he mostly fell in what was kind of a lost era of Argentinian football. Um, managers found it tough to get him into teams and to kind of win games. Um, he was an absolute hero in his time back in Argentina, playing for Boca Juniors. Um, he had some nice moments with the national team, but never anything where it's like coming close. So oh, we're going to win a major tournament. And along the course of his career, at one point, he ends up at Barcelona. Where again, I think it kind of fits the whole story. You see moments of absolute brilliance, but very weird point in Barca's history too, and a kind of transitional phase that honestly set the groundwork for what's to come. Like this is the thing with Messi taking issue with Van Hal. Like my guy, Van Hal really helped to uh, 
helped to reshape the Barcelona, the lineage from Van Hal, then to Rijkaard and to what Pep takes from that. It's kind of a lot of the core details that uh, came to shape Messi's career. But Riquelme and Van Hal essentially fell out. He wasn't used all that much as Van Hal looked to different players and attempted to win more games. And seemingly this is something that Messi and the Argentina squad wanted to bring into this game. So he did Raquelme's celebration in front of Van Hal. Very weird. Then after the game, uh, you have Messi. I don't know if you saw the clip of his interview, which I believe is on Argentinian TV, where he just gets completely distracted and starts shouting at someone off camera, um, calling them a fool. That is... Uh, since being revealed to be Vekhorst, <laughs> was walking by and seemingly looking at Messi, and Messi did not take kindly to that. Uh, Emmy Martinez, um, I can't remember, it might be for ITV or something, it was a British, it was an English language interview anyway, he was asked about, you know, how's it feel to go through and all this, and he brought it straight to, like, the disrespect shown by the Dutch, and clearly nobody wants Argentina to win, and the referee was against them. This was refereed by uh, Senor Lajas, who anyone who watches La Liga regularly would be more than used to him being the star of the show. And from FIFA's perspective, him putting him in a game with Messi seemed just like a terrible idea to me. I don't know if you got a sense of this and catching up. My sense watching the game, and I was talking to friends, it's like we all could not believe the calls that were going Argentina's way. And particularly some of the things Messi was getting away with. Um, and even like you mentioned, like Paredes, which again, I don't know if this filled into something with Van Hal when he absolutely hammered that ball into the Dutch bench. Like, part of me is like, that should be a red card because you never see that. Like, it's it's so just clearly designed of, I want to hurt someone with this. I want to cause complete and utter chaos. All of this is just kind of peak, like, Maybe this is why Argentina will win the World Cup. This is like peak Argentinian like shenanigans. It's like that group is clearly united in a way that is helping them. But I just I found all of that really, really interesting. Um kind of pretty unsavory. It does not make me want this team to win the World Cup, but it may well make them more likely to win the World Cup, if that makes any sense. Well, it's always nice to have heroes and villains going on at the same time. And we finally found uh, the team that can that can be the villain uh, in the past and moving forward. Yeah, just I, I, I agree with you that they're living in a fantasy land where everyone is against them. And I mean, they're carrying out beefs for players that aren't even on the team. I mean, it's like that's truly elite level hater stuff. And uh, if it if it carries them onto the final, I guess it worked. But not not doing anything to help their likability among among uh, neutral fans at this point. One hundred percent. Like Raquel May's last World Cup was sixteen years ago. It's not even just players that aren't on the team. This is this is not Maradona either. Like this is not the scale of legend we're talking about. Um. Yeah, very, just very strange stuff. Very, very strange stuff. I can't stop, but that was probably Messi's first World Cup um, as a very young player. So maybe he just has a very particularly close bond with Raquelme. I have no idea. Sergio Aguero, even, who I guess is there in a coaching capacity, he was like in the mix and all that after the game too. 
uh, putting up tweets. Like, they're all very, like, hostile, their tweets. Like, interested, I guess. Look, it's it's not taking anything away from uh, the intrigue going into a lot of these games. So, yeah, that's Argentina. Choose in the next round. Morocco and Portugal. Portugal put on probably the best performance of the tournament from any team to beat Switzerland and get through to the quarterfinals. Cristiano Ronaldo was dropped for that game. It seemed like they had moved on. He's in the rearview mirror. A younger Portuguese team is here, and you know, this could be their moment. They could be ready to go and get to a final or win a World Cup. Morocco had other ideas, just as they had against Spain, just as they've had really throughout this entire tournament. Um, coming out of the Belgium, Croatia, Canada group, right? That was Morocco's group. So a very competitive, pretty tough group in the first place. They came through unbeaten. They remain unbeaten. Um, even after having to go all the way to penalties against Spain, didn't take anything away from them here. Their energy is phenomenal throughout. They're so, so just Again, not meant as a pejorative or not meant to kind of saying well-organized. Just very difficult to break down. And yet they have real threat. They have players who can create moments of magic. I thought Amrabat was amazing in this game. His ability, even really late in the day, just pick up the ball and like go off on a run through midfield, get them out of trouble, get past three or four players. Um... Their counter-attacking ability is very, very impressive. At this point, already, they've made history. Um, the first African nation to get to the semifinals of the World Cup. First country from the Arab-speaking world to get to the semifinals. Uh, I believe first majority Muslim country to get to the semifinals of the World Cup. You can't write them off at this point. Um, they have, they have got a tasty, tasty semi-final coming up for a variety of reasons. But yeah, Yusuf and Naziri with a really, really good header, only goal of the game. Um, Portugal, for all their pressure laid on, really sustained pressure did not come all that close. Um, just could not find a way through. Cristiano Ronaldo did come on um, for what, in all likelihood, is the final relevant game of his career. Um, and was terrible. Like, he was really terrible. He actively hurt the team. He couldn't control the ball. He had one really good chance laid on, a great pass through from Bruno Fernandes that just exactly the kind of position that over the years, Ronaldo just absolutely buries one in the top left corner. Or low, bottom right, and it was straight at the keeper on this occasion. Just didn't happen for Portugal. I think Portugal have learned a lot from this tournament, and probably next World Cup should be in a very good position for it. But Morocco are the story of the tournament, and they kind of remain the story of the tournament at this point. Yeah, got the goal, and then just didn't make any mistakes. I think they uh, pulled the... Ronaldo ripcord way too early in the second half. I think it was like the 52nd minute or something like that. And yeah, didn't really do anything for them. There's the, the Pepe uh, header late uh, missed chance. Uh, Gonzalo Ramos had a, a chance at one point that he, that he put wide with his head. And then, I mean, 
honestly didn't even it didn't even feel that scary from a Morocco perspective. Like I, other than those few chances, it didn't feel like Portugal were ever really really going to get anything going, despite the talent they they had on the pitch. Like you said, when when Ronaldo's on the pitch, especially when you know you have to track back and defend, it's like you're playing ten versus eleven, and um, that can uh, put you out of the game. Um, like you said, Morocco up next have have an opponent who will be i guess the best that they've played to this point the defending champs going to be a much tougher matchup but just like you you said like do, do not write this team off because a well organized team with attacking players up front who are capable of at least one moment of brilliance is a pretty good recipe to keep advancing um rounds will they do it i don't know but you know, first African nation to to reach the semifinals of a World Cup. Incredible accomplishment. And this is a team that you shouted out at the beginning that was someone to watch, and they have lived up to that prediction. They've conceded one goal in the tournament. Like, also worth noting, that was victory for North America, as that was a Canadian goal. Um, that's the, the biggest thing that Canada can take from the tournament overall. Uh, there were some concerning injuries for Morocco, Roman Salis in particular. I, I actually haven't seen any updates since, but it certainly seemed like his tournament is over, and that is a colossal loss. But look, you're at the semi-final point. Anything is possible. Um, and with the way they've applied themselves with how much it means to them, I don't think there's a hungrier group. Um, I don't think there's a team that will feel more like, well, this is this is it. This is our chance that I I mean I'd be very careful if it was France. I wouldn't wouldn't be taking anything for granted. I will say I said I wasn't that afraid that uh, Portugal was going to do anything meaningful when Shadira got the two quick yellow cards and was sent off. And I w- and if there had been an equalizer there, I was very concerned about extra time. So thankfully that did not happen. That was not very smart at all. So yeah, <laughs> that was that was not a great idea. They got away with that. Last, by no means least, England against France. To me, with, with the way everything else had f- had fallen at this point, particularly Brazil going out, obviously, but Portugal too, uh, this felt like the two best teams left in the tournament uh, facing a golden opportunity. More so, I guess, in England's case, France have got two World Cups, their name. They won the last one, so most of the players in the squad have won one, and those who hadn't already are very young and will have future opportunities to come. Um, but for England, this seemed like about as good a chance as they were ever going to get. If you can get past France, got a semi-final. Yes, it's against a tough Morocco team, but it is against Morocco in a World Cup semi-final. With the other side of the draw, giving you either an old, a solid, but a dare for the taking Croatia team, and an Argentina team that might have the greatest player of all time, but also has plenty of weaknesses. Uh, the game kind of played out in an interesting way. France did a really, really kind of, I feel like poor job of, of getting Mbappe opportunities and finding space. I thought him and Dembele might have moved around more. You might have got him in different spots across your forward line. Um, even Griezmann could have gone wide for a while. Just, just to test the limits of, 
okay, England, you like Kyle Walker on Mbappe. Where are you prepared to have Kyle Walker go? Like, are you looking from to man mark? Uh, from this perspective of when I'm talking about Luke Shaw, the England player, as opposed to Luke Shaw, the Manchester United player, I would have liked to see Mbappe go up against Luke Shaw. Um, but I, I think France largely seemed content to it. Okay, well, Walker and Mbappe. One of the most thrilling moments of the match and indeed the World Cup was the race that they eventually got into where two of the fastest players on the planet were running at full speed. I was not shocked that Kylian Mbappe came out on top of that, got to the ball and got the cross in at the byline. Um, but the game opened up because of, honestly, a brilliant, brilliant strike from Aurelien Chouamani. Um, those who've been watching Real Madrid or those who are aware of his work in Ligue 1 last year will know that Chouamani is one of the, the leading young talents, one of the best young midfielders in the world. And this is kind of a... I was going to say a chance out of nothing, but it really wasn't even a chance. There was barely a gap to get this shot off. Long way out, hit ferociously hard. And I guess the first instinct is, oh, Pickford should do better there. And it's even, it's not that far away from his his hand when it goes in. When you see the replay and just how much curl was on that ball, how much it just bent away from Pickford rapidly and just perfectly, like just couldn't be timed any better to be right there on his hand and then to just move away from his hand and right into the bottom corner. That was a really, really brilliant goal. France kind of just eased up from there and it became England's game to dictate. And with that, I think there were opportunities for England to be more aggressive here. I know this is something we've been saying for a while. I think a more attacking team, certainly earlier in the second half, could have gone and killed this game. As it was, another game we're officiating ended up uh, in the spotlight. Certainly, multiple decisions that should have gone England's way that didn't because Saka was a player France had zero answers for and he just got kicked around all game and wasn't always getting decisions for it. A penalty did come from one of those, which Harry Kane dispatched. Um, looked like the game was edging towards extra time then. Olivia Giroud as he tends to do, comes up with a important header for France to put them 2-1 up. And at that point, I say, okay, France have prevailed here. They're going to hold on. They're going to manage the game. And they're going to the semifinals. When instead, Mason Mount, I don't want to say he even got true, because he was not true on goal. I mean, he, he was moving away from goal, almost towards the left corner flag. And Teo Hernandez just, barges him in the back. Ridiculous penalty to give away. I think the one thing I will say that I don't think is we talked about a whole lot, if Mount's shoulder is just a little bit more open, you have a chance to get shoulder to shoulder and maybe get away with it from just, oh, well, he's that much weaker and that's what happened. But there's just no need for the challenge regardless, particularly 2-1 up at a World Cup quarterfinal that late in the game. So one of the best penalty takers in the world steps up with a chance to put England level chance to send the game to extra time and Harry Kane absolutely blazes it high over the bar what were your thoughts on the penalty what were your thoughts on this game Andrew 
Um, so the English fans with the Union dra- Jack draped across their shoulders at the bar I was at, I told them it was shoulder to shoulder and that Mason Mount was an insult to football. Did I believe what I was saying? No, but I was supporting Adam in this anybody but England effort, and uh, we prevailed. So, so some might say that I had a lot to do with it. Uh, yeah, Kane at the at the at the penalty spot, you would at least expect him to put it on goal. I thought all the penalty decisions were correct. Um, Kane has talked often about how great it would be to kick in the NFL. And I think we showed that he can get that kind of elevation when, when he needs it. So, you know, there's that, um, you know, the, the obvious joke was there that just, you know, you can take the man out of Tottenham Hotspur stadium, but you can't take the Tottenham Hotspur out of the man, uh, in that moment, you know, the, the spursiness was just so deep within his soul that uh, unfortunately he was unable, unable to overcome it. From about the hour mark on, or after he scores the penalty equalizer until the Drew goal, this game was there for the taking for England. And I really, really, really thought they were going to win it. Um, and even then, they have that chance to to throw more chaos into the into things, and it just didn't happen. Um, it, it, during that stretch for the Drew goal, we get the, the Harry Maguire-headed chance off a set piece um, from Jordan Henderson. Uh, Harry Maguire in an England shirt has a knack for putting his head on the ball. And it, you know, in that case, almost went where he wanted it to go. I I really thought they were going to grab one and take control of the end of this game. Once they got the penalty, I I thought that again. And no, I mean, France unconvincing in this one. Um, Yeah, did not, to your point, did not do a good enough job of getting Mbappe the ball in space and just giving him the chance to wreak havoc. He did have that nice moment with that cutback that you referenced where uh the ball's back in in the middle of the box and Frank's is un, unable to do anything with it um yeah now they're in a semifinal and i should i mean they're definitely the favorites to, to win it all at this point they were one of the i guess top three or four favorites going into this as the defending champions and i guess it's just a survive and advance situation but i think england and their fans should be really disappointing disappointed to not have taken more advantage of the opportunities that arose in the middle of that second half. I mean, you and I are never once to be impressed by Gareth Southgate and, you know, I'm assuming I don't know anything. I haven't seen any reporting that his run as England manager is over. He's had some great so. accomplishment. Oh, unless, so he they're de- gonna... unless he decides it's over. I don't, I mean, he, he is, the most successful England manager ever, uh, with the exception of obviously he has not won a World Cup, which one other has, but th- there is no one else has been able to do this in a tournament sense. Yeah, that's fair. And three cycles just seems insane to me. It does, and I, I, it's always something. I, more than anything, I get suspicious of an international manager. Cause I'm like, have you got no ambitions to be a real manager and do some actual work? Uh, which is probably unfair, but. Generally, that is what a coach wants to do. They want some part of day-to-day, not, oh, what part of the country am I traveling to this weekend to watch a match? Like, that's kind of what Gareth Southgate's job is, and that's a very nice job, I guess, for a lot of the yeah, time. Yeah, I would it's, do it. <laughs> it's it's pretty pretty straightforward, um, not all that taxing for most of the time. And then, obviously, these moments come around and all the pressure in the world, all eyes in the country are firmly fixed on you. So I guess... 
maybe that balances out overall. I think unless Southgate decides otherwise, though, he'll stay. Um, I'm not a, a, like I'm not a fan of Southgate. I don't think he's a great coach. I also wouldn't think that's a terrible decision because if they were to move on, they really need to get it right because the players are still there for the most part and the youngest parts of this team are going to be a factor four years from now and a factor eight years from now. The stuff that Southgate has done is maybe more important than I think people from the outside just kind of looking at football could possibly understand. Like, Good managers, good coaches like Sengorn Eriksson, Fabio Capello, um, they really failed to just be able to get England teams through tournaments without just major drama, without the players like losing their minds in their accommodation, without just all these cracks forming and things becoming really toxic, and then the relationship with the media always being really toxic. Southgate has navigated that better than any coach has probably ever done. He has a great relationship with the media that I guess most people are like, well, does that matter? I would argue, yes, it matters for the English football team. Because for anyone who's not familiar, there is just there is no more aggressive and toxic and all-consuming relationship than the one the English football media has with the English national team. So if you give any reason, any reason... For them to be against you, your life is hell. Your player's life is hell. And they're essentially going to do what they can to create problems that will get you out of a tournament. Like, they create their own problems. It's it's a real thing. Um, It's just, yeah, I, I if I was an English person, I am not, Um, I would want to see them be more aggressive. Like, in a game like this, I would like to see them be more attacking. There's up to a point you don't have to do that. Okay, if you want to be a little bit more conservative for most of the game. But I think last half hour of this game, they could be more attacking. It was certainly too late by the time Rashford comes on. Brought Grealish on in like the 97th minute. It's like, you're just wasting your own time at that point. What are you doing? Like, I, I don't get that. Um, The one thing I will say for France and Mbappe, I think France are still very good. And the fact that France can beat England without Mbappe being the person to do it, uh, speaks to how good France are and some of the other players. Antoine Griezmann was phenomenal in this game and is really playing very well in a number 10 role. There is not a team left in this tournament that has any any answer for Mbappe. Like, where on the one hand, like, it was like you know, Morocco are just really solid and he's going to be tough getting... Hakimi wants to go forward, and Morocco need Hakimi to go forward to be one of their greatest attacking threats. I don't know. I don't know what you do in Mbappe. Then you're gonna have Mbappe against Hakimi. I've no idea what you're gonna do there because if Hakimi is gonna do a good job in Mbappe, he's giving you nothing going forward, and then maybe you're just hoping for a nil nil and nil nil through extra time and a win on penalties, and that's playing with fire against a team like that. Argentina, their fullbacks are just terrible. They're really not very good. I think Mbappe would shred them. Croatia may be the best chance, but even then, it's not. Like I, I think this was the biggest hurdle. And if like the Kyle Walker of it all couldn't, and I never thought it would. I think he did a better job than I expected, to be honest. And um, but really nullify and stop France. I, I don't think anyone left in this tournament will. So. 
yeah, I'm gonna. Uh, it may be premature. It's not the hottest take, but I'm crowning France's World Cup winners right now. I, I think there's just there's a level. Their midfield does still give me some pause, and that if you came up against a team with a good tree, maybe that's Croatia. Like I, they're they're probably the option because Argentina's midfield like. You can't be concerned about Germany and Rabio, but then be like, oh yeah, they're gonna have a problem with Enzo Fernandez. No, I don't think so. France are the best team in the tournament for me at this point, very clearly. I think they've come through their biggest challenge. So it's up to them. Could they blow it? Absolutely they could, but I I think it's there for the taking for France. That brings us to predictions, Adam. For sure the does. semifinals. Um we know who you're picking in one of the matches, but we've got one that uh, has to happen before that. Argentina versus Croatia. I uh, I told you I was going Croatia. I'm, again, abandoning a take. Um, and I think somehow the uh, delusional, angry Argentinian team finds their way to make a final, and we get Messi in a World Cup final, and all the narratives and talking points that that comes with. So... Uh, I will say that uh, Croatia's run of of penalty winners ends in the semifinals. I don't know, Andrew. I don't know. Uh, if if Messi doesn't win this one single handedly, I think they could really struggle to get through Croatia. I think Croatia can get at them. Like the Croatian midfield, they're going to come out on top in this game. And Luka Modric is going to have a really good opportunity to dictate play. If you can do that well enough, you're going to hurt Argentina in terms of their opportunities to get the ball to Messi, to Julian Alvarez, to Lautaro Martinez if he's on the pitch. I'm going Croatia. Let's do it. I'm going Croatia. Um, it's not that, like, there's no way Argentina win this. We all know the way that Argentina win this. It's very clear. If the greatest player of all time has it in him to produce, um, if he picks out magic passes like he did in the quarterfinal, if he produces just a moment of brilliance, a mazy run, a long-range effort, yeah, Argentina can certainly go true if Messi makes it all about Messi. As two teams, though, I think Croatia are going to make it really difficult for them. Really, really difficult and tough to tough to kind of overlook Croatia in any sense now. Like, they are the team that does not... They outperform expectations. They don't just meet X, they outperform them every time. And they're not going to have the pressure on them that Lionel you know, Messi is going to have on his shoulders and that Argentina are going to have on theirs. I'm going Croatia. Uh, second... Semi-final France-Morocco. I've picked France to win it, so it's not a surprise anyone. I'm going for France. Morocco could still make this difficult. I just, I do think this will be one step too far. The intangibles here is like how the Moroccan players will feel about playing France and what what that extra level of motivation does. Does that become a positive? Does it maybe become a negative? Is there extra emotion involved? The shared history between those two teams is certainly an interesting subplot for this semifinal, or between the two countries, I should say, rather than teams. Um, but yeah, France for me, 2 0, 
could be more. I think it's one of if France could break this open early, they could have a very comfortable win. But Morocco's trick has been not letting anyone do that to them. That's only the one goal conceded. The longer they hold out, the greater their chance will be. Uh, but I do think this is one where Mbappe is not going to find life as difficult as he did against England. Yeah, I'm picking France as well. Uh, last game, you know, we went 90 minutes without killing Mbappe scoring goal, and I didn't like it, Adam. And I think that uh, this game is going to be a little different. Um, but you never know. It's it's knockout stage football. Crazy things can happen. We've got uh, I I find both a rematch with Croatia and a uh, a meeting with Messi very compelling. Uh, I know you said you're less interested in kind of the possible outcomes here. Uh, but uh. You know, I, I still it's find not myself less interested compelled. Maybe it's, just, maybe it's maybe it's just because I can actually watch the games this time. <laughs> it's it's not less interested in the outcomes. I just I think the games on paper are not going to be as ah, exciting yeah. as they could have been. I, I like, think uh, uh, France France Argentina. If it's like Mbappe looking to get his second World Cup and really seal his place as the best player in the world, the best player of his generation against his club teammate who's trying to seal his place as the greatest player ever, and like put himself on the level of Maradona. Like, this is the the thing for Messi, too, and the wider context. Like, basically everyone in the world can agree that Messi is the greatest player ever. But within his own country, if he does not win a World Cup, he is never going to be able to surpass Maradona. And it's as simple as that. It's it's what it's going to take. So this is his his entire career, his legacy. It's the only thing missing. Um like great great chance we'll see what happens like that is that is an interesting final i just argentina are not playing good football that's that's kind of where i come out from that i think there have been there are teams who are out who have played much better football uh brazil certainly england portugal I guess it spells the Dutch. I personally find the Dutch more interesting. Like, I think there is more interesting football angles for all those teams, but those teams are out. So, like, credit where it's due. Argentina have had their disaster in this World Cup already. They just timed it as well as they possibly could by making it the first game against Saudi Arabia. Uh, if they were to go on and win this World Cup after starting with a loss to Saudi Arabia, that would be pretty incredible. Uh, I don't know if you're familiar with this concept, but as uh, college basketball fans, when talking about like resumes at the end of the season and whether or not you deserve uh, to to make um, the NCAA tournament, it, there's something called the transitive property win. So we beat this team. They beat this really good team. So we also get to claim that win. So if, if oh, Argentina... So I'm not in on that. But this, this neither, is... Neither so am I, so but if, I'm finishing if the France, joke. Uh, if France beat Morocco, they beat Spain and Portugal too, essentially, is the meaning of this, is it? No, here's where I'm going with this. If Argentina okay. win the World Cup, Saudi Arabia gets... There's co oh. <laughs> oh, okay. So it's, it's and, more the... The loser gets to be like, oh well, we lost to the yeah, okay, okay, I got it. Exactly. There's there was one joke in the '90s where I think in a year where UNC ended up winning the national title, and because of who they lost to, like really, uh, 
like Campbell University, which is a small private school in the middle of nowhere, North Carolina, was the actual national champions. You know, just Southern people, you know, just passing the time by amusing themselves with uh, with uh, dumb stuff. I'm tired, Adam. Dumb sports (laughs) stuff. You just described you and your entire life there. Um, All right. I watch movies. (laughs) You do. You do. That's it for this episode. We'll be back to look back on the semifinals, look ahead to the final later in the week. The end of the World Cup is inside. Hopefully we've got some fireworks still to come. Um, we will have a movie episode on this feed in a couple of days, captured in celluloid. Keep an eye out for that. And make sure you subscribe for everything we do. Here on Make Time for This, you'll find movies, you'll find music, TV, kind of all grab bag of pop culture. And yeah, World Cup coverage and occasional football episodes long beyond the World Cup too. So make sure you subscribe for all of that. Subscribe to the rest of the GSPN podcast too. Win and Six and the Eurostep can both be found on the Eurostep podcast network feed. They cover all things Milwaukee books. Cruising for a bruising covers all things Milwaukee brewers. That's hosted by myself, Andrew. And Talking to Tundra is a home for all things Green Bay Packers. Until next time, thanks again to all of you for listening. Thank you. Thank you, Adam. <laughs>